Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. Today, in London, I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The Arctic hosts plenty of scientific research, most of all on how climate change will continue to play out. But a lot of the Arctic is Russian territory, with Western ties to Russian scientists totally severed and research put on ice all of that work is at risk. And perhaps no genre of music upended the status quo as much as punk, leaving behind a mythology of its formation and its heroes. As a new dramatization hits screens, we look at the truth behind the myth-making and whether it matters. But first... China's foreign minister, Wang Yi, is doing a little damage control today. He was forced to address a number of Pacific Island countries, telling them not to be too anxious about China's plans in the region. Mr. Wang is in the middle of an eight-country Pacific tour, attempting to strike broad cooperation agreements with island nations. But a big meeting with ten of their foreign ministers today failed to reach consensus. The sticking point seems to be on matters of security. Last month, a security deal that China inked with the Solomon Islands prompted a scramble among Western diplomats. The fear is that China is laying the ground for military bases in the region, but that isn't looking as easy as Mr. Wong probably hoped. One actual military base abroad, which is this naval facility it opened in 2017 in Djibouti on the Horn of Africa, But in the last few years, it's really been accelerating and broadening its search for more bases. Jeremy Page is our Asia diplomatic editor. And last month, we had this surprise announcement of a security deal between China and the Solomon Islands. Although the the text of it actually remains completely secret, there was a leaked draft which said that the government of the Solomons would be able to ask China to send police and soldiers uh, to help maintain social order, among other things, and to conduct quote, other tasks, unquote, um, agreed by both sides. And then it also said that in return, China could, according to its own needs and with local approval, send its ships to stop over in the Solomons. Now, both China and the Solomons have denied that uh, they're planning a military base. But what is clear is that China's seeking to establish some kind of security presence in the region, as well as growing its economic influence. And it's hoping to do so with more than that one deal with the Solomons. And how is China going about getting that influence? Well, China's been trying for a while to make inroads in the Pacific, mainly through trade and aid and investment. But it's now really stepping up those efforts, particularly in this visit by China's foreign minister, Wang Yi, who's kind of eight nations over, over 10 days. He's been trying not just to get individual nations to sign up to 
bilateral agreements, some of which do have a sort of security component. But he's also been trying to get 10 countries across the region to sign up to a broader pact. A draft of, of that agreement, which he was hoping to sign in Fiji today on Monday, suggests it would cover a pretty wide range of issues, including trade, financing, tourism, public health. But it would also cover some more sensitive areas like security. China would, for example, help to train local police and build forensic labs. And it also commits to closer cooperation on cybersecurity and data networks, which are very sensitive areas for um, the U.S. and its allies. And so are all of these Pacific Island nations on board with this, this ploy? Well, apparently not. After the meeting in Fiji today, Mr. Wang said there had been agreement on five areas of cooperation, but they needed to talk further, basically. And the five areas he mentioned notably did not include security. Before the meeting in Fiji, a draft communique was circulated and uh, apparently prompted some opposition from at least one of the countries that was attending. A, a copy of a letter from the president of uh, the Federated States of Micronesia was leaked to several media outlets in which he basically said his country would not sign up to this broader regional agreement, in part because he he feared that having this, this closer relationship with China could put the region in the middle of a sort of new Cold War uh, between China and the West. And he was particularly concerned about the prospect of a potential Chinese invasion of Taiwan. And how has the West reacted to this push from China? Well, there was a very strong rhetorical response to China's security deal with the Solomons when it was announced. And now we're starting to see that translate into some more concrete policies and proposals. Uh, Australia's new Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, said on Saturday he had a comprehensive plan for the region, which included a defence training school and more support um, in various areas, including climate change, which is a big concern for the Pacific Islands. We will be proactive uh, in the region. We want to engage. Uh, Australia has been the partner of choice for a long period of time in the Pacific, and we intend to continue to be that. Australia also sent its new foreign minister, Penny Wong, to Fiji on Thursday uh, to try and sort of strengthen that relationship. And she also committed to listening to the Pacific Islands, um, particularly on climate change. The US, immediately after the Solomons deal, said that if it led to the establishment of a a Chinese military installation or some kind of permanent presence in the Solomons, America would, quote, respond accordingly, unquote. Um, but it didn't explain what that would mean. We haven't had any clarification on that point, but the US has been trying to reinforce its own trade links with the Pacific, in part through a, a new trade initiative it calls the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. And Last week, it scored a, a minor victory when it announced that Fiji uh, would sign up to that new initiative. But if that wider deal with those Pacific Island nations, with all of its security components, doesn't go through, what do you think that means for China in the world? China can already project military power quite effectively during peacetime by relying on a network of more than 90 ports around the world that are either partly or wholly owned or operated by Chinese companies. The problem for China is that if it wants its armed forces to be able to operate effectively in a conflict far from its shores, then it really needs dedicated facilities where it can station 
uniformed personnel, store weapons and equipment. So that's what it's been seeking out in the last few years. And just in the last three, it signed a secret deal to use a Cambodian Navy base. It's tried to negotiate a naval outpost in Equatorial Guinea. And it's secretly begun building a military facility inside a port in the United Arab Emirates. That's all according to American officials. But what we seem to be seeing now is a change of Chinese tactics where it's abandoned kind of any attempts to persuade the US and its allies that, that these deals don't threaten their interests. And it's really targeting countries which are much more important strategically to the US. And the other thing is that it seems to be pursuing these deals that don't necessarily mention a base explicitly, but they could lay the ground for one in the future. And in any case, whatever China's ambitions at this stage, it doesn't look like it's a it's been a smooth road so far. That's right. For all these efforts, the results have been kind of mixed. And one of the main reasons for that is just history, because the military bases that Western countries like the US, Britain, France have around the world are legacies of Empire, Second World War, Cold War, and China's basically starting from scratch. Uh, the other problem is that because democratic nations tend to be more aligned to the West, China's progress on this front is largely dependent on authoritarian leaders, and that leaves them vulnerable to sort of sudden shifts in the political landscape and public opinion, not least in the Solomons, where in a poll of Solomon Islanders uh, last year, 91% said they'd prefer to be diplomatically aligned more with liberal democracies than with China. I don't think we're going to see an actual Chinese base in the Solomons or anywhere else in the Pacific in the short term, but you could see the deployment of Chinese security forces initially maybe to help deal with social unrest. And then over time, that could lead to the establishment of facilities that could evolve into something more strategically significant. Thanks very much for joining us, Jeremy. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's really quite a lot of scientific research that goes on in the Arctic. There's also quite a lot of Russia that's in the Arctic. So successful science has required a lot of collaboration with Russian scientists. Now, sanctions against Russia, imposed by governments, institutions, and professional bodies, have pretty much frozen those relations. And that is bad news for all kinds of studies, particularly those looking into climate change. So I went recently to the Pasig Valley, which is a long, remote valley on the border with Russia and Norway, which is really as far as you can get from Oslo on the Norwegian mainland. And there are a couple of hundred people who live there, and there's reindeer herders, and mostly with snow and ice for most of the year. Jacob Judah writes for The Economist. And I was there with Paul Asfolm of the Norwegian Institute for Bioeconomy Research, who's a local scientist. And we went uh, knee-deep in the rushing waters of a creek trying to prevent a lifetime's work from being washed away by politics and, and sanctions on Russia. What is it that he's working on? Paul Asfan wanders the Arctic borderland between Norway and Russia and studies the wildlife that lives there. And when I was with him, for example, one of the things that we were doing was wading through a stream, counting freshwater mussels through a water visor. Normally, what he would have done is compared 
the data that he finds with the Russian scientists who are likewise splashing in the rivers a few kilometers to the east. But since Russia invaded Ukraine, all his contact with them has stopped. For him, obviously, this is a big issue because he's needed Russian colleagues for virtually everything that he's been doing for 30 years. Now he's worried about the sanctions deep freeze, so to speak, is going to mean for his work and for other Arctic researchers. We lose time. That is the problem. This thing's happening now is that we're losing time because of these windows of knowledge which is available and will be closed. And so is that a story that we're seeing kind of across the research landscape with Russia? Yeah, so the Pasig Valley in, in many ways is a kind of perfect microcosm for the wider Arctic. So since February, thousands of long-standing partnerships and agreements between Russian and Western institutes and universities have been put on hold. Projects involving Russian researchers have either been put on ice entirely or suspended their participation. And importantly, the formal transfer of data and knowledge from Russia has largely stopped. So I think at this point, we have to keep in mind that Russia is really crucial when it comes to Arctic research. So over half of the Arctic coastline is Russian, and the Russians have a huge network of Arctic specialists. And this means that information that comes from remote research stations in Siberia or buoys in the Arctic Ocean gives unique data points on climate change, which is now not available to Western researchers. Field work in the Russian Arctic as well gives snapshots of how animals, plants and soils are responding to climate change. It's also not possible for Western researchers to get those data points. I think we also have to add here as well that we're coming out of a pandemic where most fieldwork projects, especially Arctic fieldwork projects, were put on hold. So this is already a tough spot that is getting worse. And on its own, a gap of knowledge about wading birds in the Pasig Valley might not matter that much, but these things start to add up very quickly. And especially for data that feeds into research on climate change, these losses are really important. So how did all these connections get cut and, and how do all of these Western collaborators feel about them? So this is part of broader Western sanctions and academic sanctions on Russia that were designed after Russia invaded Ukraine as part of an effort to isolate Russia and to raise the cost for Russian society of the invasion. In Norway, I spoke with Dagrina Olsen, who's the rector of the Arctic University in Tromsø, which is a major Arctic centre. And, and he said that sanctions have put researchers in a difficult spot. I do think that the sanctions when it comes to the institutional level is correct. It would be very difficult to see the academic world without any response to the invasion. So, but then it has some severe consequences. So let's look at the consequences. One important example is permafrost research, which is crucial for climate projects and for climate projections. Two thirds of Russia is covered by permafrost, which is frozen ground that locks up huge quantities of organic materials. As it melts, that material decays and greenhouse gases are released into the atmospheres, mostly CO2 and, and methane. But without good and broad data on these emissions and the health of the permafrost, understanding about climate change is going to be more difficult. Ultimately, researchers are stuck between a rock and a hard place because you know, many things can be done elsewhere, but a lot can't. And you need that data and that access to the Russian Arctic to know what's going on. But haven't Russian scientists uh, in the round and the West been in this situation before? Was it not this way, for instance, during the Cold War? I mean, the level of formal communication and contact between Russian and Western scientists has reached a point when you speak with older scientists who remember working in those days, which is worse than the 1970s and the 1980s. The refrain that always comes is that back then there was always a way, it was always possible, but now they are simply not allowed. Russian researchers, for example, have been disinvited from academic conferences like the Arctic Science Summit, that happened at the end of March in Tromsø, where scientists, usually Russian scientists as well, present research, assess data and discuss everything Arctic. Ole Meesund from the Norwegian Polar Institute said that this was a major change for him. 
during the Cold War, uh, it, uh, things were uh, quite predictable. Now it is uh, nobody's able to predict. We don't know what's going to, to happen, what will be the next steps and so on. And nobody expected this. We, we, nobody talked about that this could happen. So how do you see things progressing? How, how do you see things getting back to something more like normal? Well, isolating Russia in this way does create a dilemma because you lose Russian contributions to climate science and that creates a cost for everyone. Even if things start to normalise soon, which ultimately looks unlikely, it might even be difficult to go back to how it was. Russian scientists themselves, for example, are overwhelmingly reliant on the West for international collaboration. And there's a lot of money that comes with that to support infrastructure, research projects that feed into broader scientific knowledge about the Arctic and about climate change. On the political level, for example, in March, 200 Russian rectors, including the rector of the Northern Arctic Federal University in Arkhangelsk, which is a major Russian Arctic centre, signed a letter supporting the invasion, which many have cited as being a little bit of a shock to some people who are involved in that university world. But even on the micro level, I mean, Dr. Asfolm in the Pasig Valley said that he'd received one email from a colleague on the other side of the academic curtain about muscle distribution, but he wasn't allowed to reply. So it could be a long road to getting back to where we were. Jacob, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. No major act in pop music had a career so brief and so lurid as that of the Sex Pistols. From their first gig to their effective dissolution was a span of just 26 months. David Bennon writes about music for The Economist. A track like God Save the Queen was really sticking up two fingers to everything that was revered by polite society. My vision for the Sex Pistols is one of danger and desire. No, no. There's a new miniseries airing this week called Pistol, which adapts the band's story into a costume drama. And it's based on the memoir of guitarist Steve Jones. And it repeats that orthodox punk narrative of the idea of punk being a deliberately created monster. I don't want musicians, I want saboteurs, assassins. For the intention of destroying the old order. The problem with Pistol is that at no point does it suggest any awareness of the possibility that the accepted narrative of punk might by now be part of the boring old order itself. So what do you mean by that? Where does the narrative not quite match the reality as you see it? Perhaps the most tenacious myth about punk is that uh, the people who lived through it and indeed were part of it thought about it the way that we think about it now. They didn't have the benefit of hindsight. And this isn't unique to punk. This is a myth that attaches itself to almost all significant cultural moments. But because punk is so endlessly recounted, we hear it more often. And Pistol is one more example of it. The origins of this punk mythology go back to 1980 and a film called The Great Rock and Roll Swindle. At last, the film you thought you'd never have to see. In which the Sex Pistols manager, Malcolm McLaren, depicted himself as an ingenious puppet master, executing to perfection a grand and brilliant plan. Talked to other people who were there at the time, including some of the members of the band. Their recollection is 
more that he was a brilliant provocateur, but who really had no foresight or control over what was going to happen, and then afterwards would simply claim it was intentional all along. So the question is about whether this was an engineered revolution or not. There are dissenting voices from the punk cohort, people who were there and really don't remember it happening that way. Michael Bracewell is the author of a recent book called Souvenir. He describes punk as a magic mirror where people see only what they want to see. At the time, some people saw it just as a chance to have a fight and stir up trouble. Some people saw it as an engine of class warfare. Some people saw it as a nihilistic expression of the implosion of post-war modernity, to quote Howard DeVoto, the original singer of Buzzcocks and later magazine. And some people saw it very much as an artistic movement. They compared it to the Dada movement in Zurich. In which case, what is the truth behind the punk rock movement? How should we view it? The pathology of punk is not altogether false. It was indeed revolutionary and transformative, and its its music is still influential. Punk itself remains a byword for rebellious attitude. But what didn't happen was that it didn't tear everything down and force it to start again. A lot of its supposed targets survived and reasserted themselves or were never even dented by it. Not least the rock dinosaurs who still rumble around Stadia today. Punk changed everything for a moment and then changed relatively little thereafter, except for the lives of its self-archivists who are very much invested in its prestige. Maybe this is heresy, but does it matter taking up that magic mirror idea if it is for listeners, enthusiasts, rather than historian types? It might be an artistic movement, it might be a class war, it might be a straight rebellion against the status quo. I mean, so what, how it came to pass? It may well be that it doesn't matter if what we understand about punk is mythological or not. As the famous line has it, print the myth. The music, a lot of it, remains exciting and fascinating after all this time. And, of course, pop music pop culture are very largely about myths. So it's not a disaster if we allow old punks to self-mythologize. But as we can see in the case of a series like Pistol, it can get a bit tedious. David, thanks very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. Drop us a line at podcasts at economist.com or leave us a rating wherever you listen. We'll see you back here tomorrow. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.